Gentlemen, this is a football. That is one of the most famous and frequently used sports quotes of all time. However, most people don't actually know the story behind the quote. In July of 1961, Vince Lombardi kicked off the first day of training camp for the 38 players on the Green Bay Packers football team who the prior season had lost the championship game to the Philadelphia Eagles in heartbreaking fashion. When the players reported for the start of training camp, they expected to explore new ways to advance their game for the upcoming year. That is when Vince Lombardi held up a football and said, gentlemen, this is a football. Good catch. He proceeded to have everyone open up their playbooks and start on page one. He had them focus afresh on the fundamentals of blocking, tackling. Ole Miss could focus a little bit on that. Throwing and catching. And as NFL players at the top of their game, I'll just tell you it's not what they expected. But beginning with the fundamentals, the Packers went on to win the NFL championship that season 37 to nothing against the New York Giants. In fact, they would win five NFL championships over the next seven seasons. If focusing on the fundamentals can elevate a football team to such heights, imagine what it can do in the life of the church. Rather than pouring our time and energy into contemporary bells and whistles, we should get back to the basics of knowing and applying God's word. Consider the words of a few of our past presidents, George Washington, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. John Quincy Adams, the earlier my children begin to read the Bible, the more confident will be my hope that they will prove useful citizens of their country. Abraham Lincoln, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Woodrow Wilson, I ask every man and woman in this audience that from this day on, they will realize that part of the destiny of America lies in their daily study of the great book. Herbert Hoover, the whole of the inspiration of our civilization springs from the teachings of Christ and the lessons of the prophets. To read the Bible for these fundamentals is a necessity of American life. To say that our nation has moved away from the fundamental foundations of God's word is likely a gross understatement. But for our nation to have moved so far away from the Bible as the reliable source of truth in life, I suggest such a movement first began in our homes. Take the mother trying to impress the preacher who had come to visit them for dinner. She asks one of her daughters to go get the good book for them to read around the table. You know, daughter, the good book that we love so dearly. Much to the mother's embarrassment, the daughter brought back the TV guide. Um, and yet, sadly, for our homes and our nation to have lost sight of the fundamental foundation of the Bible, I actually fear it began in our churches. 
Clark Pinnock says, the chaos of American theology today can be traced back to its roots in the church's rejection of biblical infallibility. To move off from the pages of scripture is to enter into the wastelands of our own subjectivity. This church is a Bible. If we are going to have true victory in our lives as the people of God, we need to get back to the basics. And we need to open up our playbook. That is Peter's instruction in the first chapter of his second letter, beginning at verse 12. The apostle writes, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that surely I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my departure. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Notice with me first the character of the messenger. Peter says three times in verses 12 to 15 that he is reminding believers about how to conduct themselves in accordance with God's truth. Our character and our testimony should bear witness before others to the reliability and the power of the biblical message. We must apply scriptures to our lives, not just put them in pretty frames and hang them on the walls of our homes. So why trust the reliability and power of Peter's message? Why care about what he's reminding us about, what he's stirring us up to do? Peter was not a perfect man, but he was a genuine man. No church should expect a perfect preacher, but the church should look for an authentic, real pastor. Nobody should look for you to be perfect, but they should look for you to be authentic and real. Peter was not a perfect man, but he was a giving man. Peter served the church from a selfless spirit of humility. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, he charges the pastors of local churches, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. 
Peter was not a perfect man, but he was a gallant man. He stood firmly behind the word of reconciliation in Jesus Christ, that which he boldly and passionately proclaimed. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and the other apostles were ordered not to preach Jesus, to which they replied that they would obey God rather than men. And at that time, they were flogged. But they rejoiced being counted worthy of suffering for the great name of Jesus. And now in verse 14 of our text, Peter acknowledges that his time to die for the gospel is just around the corner. Only Peter could never stop testifying to what he had seen, to what he had heard. Here he references the Mount of Transfiguration where along with James and John, he got to see the kingdom of God present with power. Peter saw Christ as the one to be enthroned in majesty and in glory. Still, is it just Peter's word against the word of others? Peter says that the Holy Spirit directed those who wrote the words of the biblical text, but why should we believe the credibility of the message? We do not know Peter like his audience knew him, neither through direct personal encounter nor by reputation. We know nothing of the experiences of Peter. Uh, we, we never walked alongside the Lord during his earthly ministry. We never witnessed Christ's transfiguration. Nevertheless, I would say to you this morning that we do have credible support of the Bible's reliability and trustworthiness. The psalmist says in chapter 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I want to suggest to you that that acronym or an acronym of the word LAMP, L-A-M-P, can serve as a way to recognize and remember the reliability of God's word. For one, the Bible is... L for logical. Approximately 40 different authors wrote the scriptures over the course of more than a thousand years with complete unity of message. Imagine, just imagine, I mean, here we are, we're all in the same time period, we're all essentially the same culture, and we're sitting in the same place. And I said to you, I want you to go home and I want you to write five pages. And you came back with your five pages. What's the likelihood that we could put all of our five pages together and make sense of what we have written? It's a rhetorical question. It's not a chance. We know that, right? And yet, the Bible written by many different authors from various cultures over more than a thousand years, does have a unified, cohesive message. Maybe it is better for us to say that the Bible defies logic. Two, the Bible is filled with A for archaeological evidence. The events of the Bible take place in real time, in real places, involve real people. Archaeologists continually uncover additional supports for the biblical record. 
Some people say, well, I trust the, um, the Bible more than the Book of Mormon, for instance. Well, the Book of Mormon doesn't have any archaeological support whatsoever. None. But we have nothing that contradicts what we have in the biblical record. Over 100 years ago, William Ramsey, a young atheist scholar, went to Asia Minor with the expressed intent of proving as false the history found in the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Ramsey began to dig in the ancient ruins of Greece and Asia Minor to show how Luke had invented much of his history. And yet, to Ramsey's amazement, he found that Luke's accounts were accurate to the tiniest of details. The evidence was so convincing that Ramsey gave his life to Christ and became a biblical scholar. Next, the Bible contains M for manuscript reliability. Do you know that we have more than 6,000 partial and complete manuscript copies of the New Testament? The closest to that would be um, Homer's Iliad with 568 copies. Nobody seems to question the authenticity and the authorship of the Iliad. But we have over 6,000 New Testament copies. The sheer volume of biblical manuscripts that we possess greatly narrows the margin of doubt and the kind of the discrepancies between all of these manuscript copies. Most of those discrepancies are simply spelling matters or word order. For instance, it may say in one copy, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in another copy, it may say, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, no matter of doctrine is affected. As it pertains to the Old Testament, Jesus confirmed several times that it is the divine, authoritative word of God. And to embrace the teachings of Jesus and the overwhelming reliability of the New Testament, you must also embrace the trustworthiness of the Old Testament. But there's more to it than just that. Some of you may be aware of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found between 1947 to 1956 in some Qumran caves. These scrolls contain fragments of every Old Testament book except for Esther. They pretty much have found the entirety of the book of Isaiah in these Dead Sea Scrolls, and it matches our biblical translation of Isaiah 98%. That's astounding. How can you deny the credibility of this book? And finally, think about P for prophecies fulfilled. Over 2,000 of the approximate 2,500 prophecies in the Bible have already come to pass without error. And I don't mind telling you the others are going to come to pass too. Better get ready. L for logical. A for archaeological evidence. M for manuscript reliability. P for prophecies fulfilled. But... I could argue with somebody until I'm blue in the face about the credibility and the reliability of God's word. But the Holy Spirit must move. I love this statement by Charles Spurgeon. 
A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their hands that they had to defend a lion. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight him. Well, I suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apologetic for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all of his adversaries. Church, we just need to let the lion out. Jesus Christ is the crux of the message. So I would suggest this morning, if you would not object and feel that it was humbling to you, that we just need to return to the basics. I'll be honest, I'm just not concerned with the so-called church growth strategies. I'm not concerned with the bells and the whistles. I'm just not. I am concerned, however, with the fundamental truth. I am concerned with letting the lion out. This church is a Bible. And it points from beginning to end about the lion of Judah, Christ Jesus. This book is not about dinosaurs. This book is about the king of kings. In Genesis, Jesus is the promised seed of the woman. In Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, Jesus is the sin offering for atonement. In Numbers, Jesus is the curse raised up on a pole. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is the promised prophet to come. In Joshua, Jesus is the captain who leads us into the promised land. In Judges, Jesus is our deliverer from the cycle of sin. In Ruth, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel through 2 Chronicles, Jesus is the promised king. In Ezra and Nehemiah, Jesus is the restorer of the nation. In Esther, Jesus is our advocate. In Job, our redeemer. In Psalms, our all in all. In Proverbs, our source of wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, our meaning. And in Song of Solomon, our beloved. In all the prophets, he is the prince of peace. In the gospels, he is the son of God and the son of man. In Acts, Jesus is the ascended king. In the epistles, he is the indwelling king. And in Revelation, he is the coming, conquering king. So what? Go to Jesus. If we do not go to him, to the one to whom the Bible points, then we miss the entire purpose of the message that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
because everything that they were called to speak was to glorify and point to Christ. John Stott says, Consider a young man who is in love. He has a girlfriend who has captured his heart. As a result, he carries a photograph of his beloved in his wallet because it reminds him of her whenever she is far away. Sometimes, when no one's looking, he might even take the photograph out and give it a little kiss. But kissing that photograph is a poor substitute for the real thing. And so it is with the Bible. We love it. We are in love with it only because it points us to the one of whom it speaks. Only because it points us to Christ. This church is a Bible. And it tells us about the redemption story of Jesus Christ. And that, friends, that's how we win. There is no other way, there is no other name but the name of Jesus. How about we get back to that fundamental truth? Nothing else really matters, does it? But knowing Jesus more, loving Jesus more, living for Jesus more, that's what we're supposed to stand on. That's what we're supposed to be stirred up by. Not programs, but a person. Not bells and whistles, but a Bible. So that we can grow closer to Christ. Won't you trust and come to Jesus today? Pray with me. Lord, we want to experience victory. The only way we're going to win is if we're deeply in love with Christ. Today, I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would return to the basics. But in all of our day, how much time do we spend in your word? What do we love? Who do we love? Get us back to the basics, Christ. Draw us, I pray, to you. Spirit of God, move, we pray, for the glory of God our Father. We pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, in your name, be glorified. Amen. Our song of response today is Only Trust Him, hymn 465.
There's nothing else that you can place your trust in that's going to give you hope, peace, and victory than trusting in Jesus Christ. If you have a decision to make today, the altar is open. Let's stand as we sing.